Hello and welcome to this episode of the Resonate podcast, Creativity and Community. My name is Emily McGrath. This month, we continue with our series theme to explore different facets of creativity. From the wilds of Scotland, I bring you my conversation with Chris and Michaela Goen, who spoke to me about different creative communities they've been part of in the past and how they have built a sustainable lifestyle with creativity at its core. This episode also features poetry and reflection from our poet in residence for this episode, Tracy Wheeler, in a number of poetry interludes. As ever, at Resonate, we aim to cultivate an open-minded space to explore ideas, experience different perspectives, and listen to new voices. Hi, Chris and Michaela. Welcome to the Resonate podcast. Perhaps you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourselves and, and who you are. Who are we, Michaela? Do you want to go first? You go first. Okay. I'm Michaela. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are living in Scotland on the west coast in Argyll, and we've been here for nearly 20 years. Currently, what we're doing is running a small business together from home and trying to lead quiet and sustainable lives, earning very little money and growing our own and doing all of those things. We've been involved over what, I think maybe was it 15 years or something in our church community, which was called Uri. I do pottery for a living and we've got lots of chickens. And <laughs> Oh yeah, I should mention the children first. Oh, yeah. Could you edit that? The chickens and We have two children. <laughs> <laughs> Um, not chickens though, no so. who were in their 20s so I think that's probably a little bit of me anyway over mm. to you yeah I suppose I was until about four or five years ago I earned my 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 living or earned our family living as a, a social worker and then a social work manager working almost exclusively in the field of mental health so that that whole thing kind of connected constantly back into my understanding of spirituality and yeah so that that was a huge driving force for a lot of of my kind of approach and and thinking about life but I was promoted probably about five times beyond my level of competency (laughs) to the point where I was managing a whole local authority area and it just stripped me bare some of those tasks I could do really well some of them I, I always struggled with as I guess maybe everybody would in different ways but the stress and grind of that eventually meant that I I had to look at doing something else and already by then I'd realized that my lifeblood was found in creativity it was about writing and, and thinking and and connecting up ideas in creative pursuits so so we were looking already for a, for a way to, to kind of allow that sort of thing to, to be the, the direction that our life travelled, but also determined in the world that's being destroyed by global warming, perhaps. So we were looking to find a way of living much more simply and much more sustainably and much more connected to uh, small scale changes in our own lives that allow us to live the sort of life that we aspired to. So that's what we've, we've been trying to create for the last four years. Have you always been creative people? I was brought up, I think, in a home where stories and art and all of those things were really important with my my mum. I loved art at school, but my art teacher said I wasn't creative. (laughs) And, uh, And so although 
I remember going to a college to find out about the art course. I was talked out of it and went down a more academic route. But I've always liked doing things that are creative. But that really, for many, many years, extended to maybe making people birthday cards and having a go at cross-stitch and things like that. It was small-scale hobby kinds of things. About 15 years or so ago, maybe, I don't know, I started running craft workshops with a friend, which opened up a lot more doors and opened up the kind of creative world a little bit more. And then, yeah, there's more to that story really about getting into pottery and things. But yeah, I think I've always had an in, I've always had an interest in it, but it's taken on a very, very, very different shape now over the last number of years. My background is in community work, community regeneration projects. And so I didn't want to let go of that work and just pick up an art, you know, an artist label and, and let go of all of that. So it's been lovely over the last few years to weave those two things together for me I, it was music in the first half of my life that was my outlet the main creative outlet I sort of became a worship leader I had the the kind of rainbow strap and everything on my guitar and, and so that absorbed huge amounts of energy at the time we were going to a, a very large church with several music teams in theory I, I was in, involved in coordinating the, the different music teams and then I was invited when we first came up here to go and lead some music in, in America and discovered the whole weird world of worship leading careers there are kind of this stratified process a career structure to go and be a worship leader in all these different churches the, you know kind of large mega church things being of course the places where you know you you earn a lot of money and little small local churches you know you, you still get a stipend so I, anyway so I was, I was around that kind of stuff and by the time I'd come back from there I never wanted to to lead worship again as long as I could could live because the whole thing just seemed obscene in all sorts of different ways so yeah so that already by then I think I, I was writing a lot and then then as I was going through my work life I discovered that it was the writing that enabled me to process things and I kind of remember somebody I think it was Richard Holloway being interviewed about his experience of contemplation and talking about going to a monastery that he was considering being a contemplative monk at the time and eventually someone in exasperation said to him don't be ridiculous you're not a contemplative you need to you need to be a writer you need to you need to pray with a pen in your hand and I realized that that's okay that's that, that made absolute sense to me I I realized that I think and I and I process and I and I pray in as much as I am able to understand what that is now by writing so yeah it's just become a way of, of doing all sorts of self-therapy really <laughs> you mentioned the community that you were part of Uri how did that come about it started when we were part of a local church and we'd been here in this area for a few years we were very conscious of how inward looking the churches here were at that time it felt like there's this we're in this beautiful beautiful part of the world with mountains and sea and beautiful coastlines and yet we were gathering in these small dark little spaces and meeting people through community work that would never ever go to one of these small churches because they'd been hurt in the past or their great grandma had you know it's a small area and those things live on and so we gathered together a few people from different churches. That's how it started. It wasn't connected to any one church. It was just a gathering of individuals who wanted to create spaces outdoors where people could meet something of God without it being an evangelical thing, without us telling them who'd set it up, without us hanging around to give people any pamphlets or anything. It was just 
an art trail in the woods or a, a labyrinth on the pier or creating open spaces where people could be you know over 15 years it changes because different people get involved different things happen in the community over time it became for a while as well as doing those outward looking things it also became a group that met ate together bought something of worship to share and whatever by that point most of us weren't going to a church on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night. The last few years, for so many reasons, everybody that was involved at that point had kind of run out of steam a little bit and were having their own things to deal with and we became much more of a connected group together than we did about the outward-looking thing, which we struggled with a bit, really. We stayed involved because of the people we loved so much, but we did less of the outward-looking creative stuff. So I think we've had to find another way for us to do that for us to reach out and offer creative spaces. In, in the early days, the first thing we did was this week-long festival, which was actually called Uri, which then became the name of the group. The festival was about trying to, we kind of brought in choirs and Peter Housen, an artist called Peter Housen, who, who paints these incredible, biblically-themed, gnarly figures. Check out his work, it's incredible. Um, we had a 24-7 prayer room for yeah, the whole week on the pier, so and it, we had... Mid- like people doing clowning and stuff with kids. Yeah, so oh, it's had, absolutely it was incredible. <laughs> it was exhausting. And we, we came out of that week saying, we'll never do that again. And we never did. And we never <laughs> did. Uh, but what we did do is we then we thought, well, okay, if we don't want to do that, that anymore, can we do one-off events? So that's sort of what we stepped down to. And at that stage, as Michaela says, we weren't seeking particularly to be a community of people. We were just a group of people doing things together. But along the way, we suddenly realised that there were a lot of other groups across the UK, particularly in England, who were doing very, very similar things and were using lots of similar skills. And there was an old network which Johnny Baker pulled together um, under the loose name Tal. Toko. So that would have been maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago that that was around. And there were a few meetups of, of, of that, that group. It was almost like discovering other people like you. You know, that thing where you were, oh, we're not alone. There are other people like us. And, and there was this kind of real sense of, of belonging that came out of that and connection and, and a realisation that was a stream. So it, it just became like a, a place where it felt we were free to, to kind of experiment and play. And the whole worship became closer to an art gallery and curating a space in an, an art gallery rather than creating this constructed magazine-style worship service. And once we, once we started down that route, it was really, really hard to go back. And there's a lot, a lot of kind of you know, jokes about that because, you know, there's the, there's the old... You know, suggestion that an alternative worship service is just 10 people standing around a bucket and dropping in pebbles and then going, hmm. And when I first heard that, I, I thought to myself, I'm sure we've done that. <laughs> but we did lots of really, really good things, you know, it's just lovely things to, to think back on. The kind of art installations we did on a waterfall walk where we used the, the themes of water with all sorts of sculptures and things in the water, which were just and water wheels just driven by the stream and the poetry woven through the whole thing and they were just lovely things to be part of and will forever be a treasure in my mind. I have to say that it, of course like any community curation of things like that it wasn't easy and doing anything with a group of disparate people there's, there's all sorts of tensions and trying to sort of hold all that together was, was a, lot, a huge part of, of everything. It's do you stick with the getting the task done 
or do you actually need to prioritize the fact that in order to get the task done as, as, a, as a group of people who love one another you have to prioritize love over the task and we had lots of live discussions about that and, and out of that really Uri became evolved into a community of, that was safe for people to be in particularly people that had perhaps been scarred by the church experiences as Michaela hinted before. Yeah I think as well when we were part of the Tautoko network it was quite striking that most of the people we met because it was down in England were from city or town areas where the groups that could gather to do their kind of alternative worship or church outside of church church without walls all those things were very like-minded and and we're in a very rural area so we had a group of people that are very 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 different from one another in terms of what they believe and how they believe and how they want to act on that age yeah all different ages different backgrounds some very evangelical some people that never wanted to use the word god anymore you know i mean we had kind of it was it was hard to hold all those things together wasn't it and sometimes we did it and sometimes we didn't do it that well but i think what happened because we would focus on for a long time focusing on these one-off events meant that by the end of it we would meet together at the place wherever that was outdoors or indoors and have communion together when everybody else had gone and they're they're the things that I remember we were like we could all forget about all the arguments that we've just had and celebrate what's just happened so many amazing stories and we never told anybody who we were we never put anything out there so but it started to be like every now and then there'd be a letter in the local paper with a story about you know what somebody had found on on their bench on the seafront or something and what it had meant to them and it was it was it was worth it wasn't it but it was a lot of work (laughs) and a lot of ups and downs along the way but I think everybody's still speaking Mm. as far as we're aware anyway (laughs) (laughs) and now the poetry interlude been reflecting on the word community ever since I was asked to be part of this podcast. It's not always a positive word for me. Sometimes community isn't something we join, it's something that's imposed upon us. It's something that creates order in a complicated world. The word community has been bandied about in the news so much over the past 18 months. And I wrote this poem out of that feeling of perhaps these people don't always want these names imposed upon them. It's called BAME. I don't know why you're not pleased. We've given you a name now. You're a community. It's official. And community means together, happy, content. No, it's not a particularly snappy title, I'll give you that. But it's got an acronym. We've put a vowel in now as well. Makes it easier to say. Plus, it lets the Asians in. That's nice. What do you mean, you're not all the same? Surely it's better to be together, all in the same boat... All in the same dinghy? What do you mean? You're not the minority. Well, no, globally, I'll give you that. I suppose 
If you all ganged up on us, you would be the majority. But that wouldn't be very nice, would it? Calling us a minority? Don't be like that. We're only trying to help. One community that many of us are part of is the church. And I guess from the outside it must look like a rather archaic and formal community. But from the inside it doesn't really feel like that. And I just really miss sitting in a chair or a pew and looking around at friends. Knowing that we're all there for the same reason. And this poem just captures a moment in time sitting in a church service. It's called In Church at Prayer. The clock strikes. At the front, the reader shuffles papers, delaying for the long pause of eleven chimes. In church, at prayer, the people wait. They are patient and practised, content. There is a clearing of the throat and prayers begin, winging their way from earth to heaven, taking in the major sights, the poor, the grief-stricken, the drought and the earthquake, the queen and the country. Along the pew, heads are bowed and hands clasped, mostly their own. There are two young heads together, his and hers, their fingers interlaced, his free hand taking the opportunity to caress the back of her arm. The queen is unperturbed. Such activity cannot steal her thunder. Neither do the bishops or all the saints express any concern. In church, at prayer, the people join with the prayer that Jesus taught and the caress turns to the smallest of squeezes at the mention of temptation. Only Jesus is watching. He smiles makes the sign of blessing and moves on. Your creativity, how is that shaped by living in Scotland? I think wherever you are can inspire you, can't it? You've got to be kind of open to it. It's very easy to be inspired by the landscape here though, isn't it? I think that's possibly more true of of Michaela than it is of me though. I think I'm inspired by ideas more than images. So the idea of this place inspires me. The idea of the wildness, the wildness that's been twisted and diminished by the changes we've made to the environment. Those things are are all out there. And then the sense of the history of the kind of wild west of Scotland as it is and the, the Celtic traditions within that, all those, all those become portable ideas that kind of play around in my head. But they jostle for place with a whole different set of ideas that are not really related to here at all. In terms of the colour spectrum on a simple level that we use in our things we make with clay, it's all entirely driven by what we see. And a lot of the themes that tend to end up in the clay that often come out of, because I suppose we should add that what we make within our business are things out of ceramics that use poetry. So it's, it's those two things coming together that we kind of hit on, really. So, yeah, so, so I, I would typically be spewing out some random poems at different times and Michaela will use 
those poems within particular pieces, whether that is something that will be framed within a piece of wall art, or whether it would be something like a vase or, or whatever it would be. So she'd be using the poetry along with images and colours to kind of allow that to come to life. So a lot of that w- would be shaped absolutely by our environment, but the poetry perhaps less so, perhaps that's more shaped by the, the consorted mess of my own mind, I think. I think as well, we're on a little spot of our gal called the Cowell Peninsula, so we're almost at the very bottom of the peninsula. There's a lot of people live on the peninsula, but very, very spread out, and there's artists everywhere. We live in a little village, and there are three potters within walking distance of house. I don't know if the area draws artists to it or if people become more open to the artists within them because they live here. I don't know. Does that also engender more art? Do you find that people's creativity feeds into each other? Yeah, well, there's a lot of potters and it's really, really helpful for me because I'm making it up as I go along. And there are people that have been doing it for a lot longer who I can ask questions of, borrow the kiln when I was breaks, that kind of thing, which is really, really helpful. We've had things like a collective of artists and makers to kind of, you know, support one another in more kind of business-wise, and we've done pop-up shops of local makers and that kind of thing. It is good to know, you know, you can, there's lots of people around that are doing what we're doing, trying to earn a living from art, and, it, you know, that's that's helpful. I'm not sure how much that happens apart apart from the the sort of the community curated spaces we were talking about before. I, th- I think most art has, in, at some level, an element of narcissism about it. It's arising from someone's meanness. So uh, how you combine that with someone else is actually really difficult. We've had a few discussions about how we do it. I think typically, I suppose one one way you might do it is by one person responding to another person's work of art. So you could have poetry written in response to a painting. But could you have a situation where those two pieces of art were co-created? That's much, much harder to do. I, I can envisage it happening, but actually, even though I've worked now with a few different artists with my poetry, it's never been that kind of integrated. It's usually been I've written something and they've put art to it or or the other way around. A few years ago now, I was involved in a, an exhibition in Leeds and Cy Smith, who is an incredibly talented artist who does an awful lot of, of curation and support of other artists in Leeds and further afield. And he pulled together uh, this wonderful eclectic exhibition um, called World Upside Down. It grew out of the Donald Trump's kind of use of, of the Beatitudes in his speech and how incongruous that seemed even then. So he was trying to sort of understand what the Beatitudes might still bring to us if we look at it again in that context, in the context of, of the world that we were living in now. And there's a few people. In fact, Steve Broadway provided some amazing portraits of street sleepers in Bristol, which still was one of the most moving pieces in there so yeah so so my involvement in that thing was to kind of bring a, a poetic eye to some of those pieces and and I, I absolutely love that I love the fact that, that that one art form responds to another and creates something together but even that's not quite co-creation it seems to me it's much more about one narcissism meeting another narcissism if you see what I mean I hope we're not. a friendly bunch, though. Yeah, fr- friend, friend, friendly narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting way of looking at it because I, 
I was just thinking, so I used to be in Aberdeen part of a photography group for a, a short while and sometimes we would go, so we'd have our outings and, and it wouldn't necessarily be that you'd go together, but it would be like this week we're going to the harbour side. So everyone goes to the harbour side and, and posts their pictures and you see their pictures and by you've all gone to the same place and you've taken completely different photographs. But also, particularly at that time when I was learning more about photography, it gave me oh, I hadn't thought of that angle or I hadn't. So then the next time that we've done that, then my photography developed. So that it is completely individual, but also at the same time, that group developed my technical skill. It developed artistic eye. So in a sense, the photography I created was completely collaborative based on these experiences. Yeah, I think that's what I was thinking while you were talking is that collaboration for me is more, it's not, working on a piece together I did that once with Leslie the, you did um, it with me a few times and that didn't necessarily go well <laughs> <laughs> the um I, 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 I did a project with somebody who's doing textile design and um, we worked on a pottery and textile thing together which was brilliant but mostly I think it comes from the inspiration and encouragement from the artists and makers and that includes the people that I do pottery workshops for, if you know what I mean, the people that are coming in to the studio or that I'm meeting in the community that are doing their own pottery, it's inspiring and yeah. encouraging. And also the kind of social media world of people that either other artists or people that buy our pottery or poetry, whatever, that kind of connection that we build with people. So things grow out of those yeah. conversations and they you know it's, it's kind of it is a collaboration because you can't do it in a bubble on 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 your own at all it's it's always about conversations you've had the things that you've shared with somebody the you know the the, the yeah. somebody else's confidence growing helps you helps me as an artist you know to watch that happen in somebody else and pushes me as well so it's more fluid, I think, mm. than a direct collaboration with another artist. I think, I think actually, I, I would very, very much agree with that, dear. <laughs> Just uh, because, you know, despite my apparent cynicism of using the word narcissist, I, I suppose, I think, how much do we need, you know, some kind of validation in knowing that what we're creating is, is connecting with somebody else, is moving somebody else. And I, I always remember there's an interview with David Bellamy where he, he said that no great piece of art was ever made without confidence, as if his photographs were all about his arrogant projection of his idea of what the world was like. And, and I, I listened to it and I was quite stunned when, when I first heard it because I thought, well, most art that has moved me appears to come from a position of vulnerability not confidence you know and may, maybe there's, there's an element of confidence because you're being willing to put yourself out there but actually great musicians that I know always think that what they've done is really crap you know and you say what that, that song is just incredible why would you ever think that that was anything other than just amazing and the same I mean how many poets do we know who would ever call themselves a poet it's almost like you know it's it, uh, well you know I, I, I dabble with a with a bit of, bit of poetry sometimes but you know I would call myself a poet. Confidence is fragile enough for people that that tend to have an artistic bent I think and those of us that do it tend to be more introspective anyways but how much do we need other people to recognize that in us and just encourage us and say you know that that, that was really good you know I loved what you did with that and and how much does that free the creative juices to then go on and create more so, so yeah I hadn't thought of that as being co-creation but I think you're absolutely right I guess that 
does really neatly link into the poetry because obviously there's your own writing but one of the big ways that you have been connected to different people is through the publishing and through creating this sort of network of poets how did that all kind of come about originally well I suppose it started because back to the old discussions about Tao Toko there was an awful lot of creativity being produced as that, that grew out of what was then termed the emerging church or, or the, the okay. alternative worship thing so there were liturgies being written and videos being created and music being made and and it would be made for an event and then never used again so it's probably 20 years ago now uh, Johnny Baker and, and a, a few other people pulled together this this kind of publishing platform called Proust just because of the nature of this this kind of atmosphere that was created around that and the generosity of the other people back to that thing about encouragement this extended community of people who had had been contributors to something which Proust published began to grow and I was first introduced to this by the aforementioned Cy Smith, who had produced this this incredible collection of images, which was called Forty, and Forty was it was a Lent resource, basically with forty images that he'd, he'd written, and I wrote an accompanying script almost that we we produced as part of the Uri thing, and that became a Proust book. So that was the first introduction to Proust, and then out of that, I suddenly found myself connecting with other poets and then having some of the materials published by, by Proust. And then from quite often people would send me poem. I don't know if this, this happens to you too. You know, it's, it's almost, I guess it's that thing again of people wanting to know if what they're writing is, is good. And how on earth do, do you respond that, to that was always my issue, because whether it was good or not, what right did I have to say whether it was good or not? So for me, it was always about, and actually, to be honest, most of what people sent me was good. Most of what people sent me, there was something good in it. You know, if it was unrealized idea or whatever, there were, there were things in there which which felt important. Now, now, obviously, poetry often is is about us processing things ourselves, as I've described myself doing. But but there are elements of that which which might release something in someone else. And yet, this poetry was going nowhere. There was no outlet for this. No one was ever going to publish it. It would, it would seem to me. So, out of that kind of came this vague idea. Well, we should try and collect some of this poetry. We should try and do something about that. And I suppose at that time, most of the emerging churchy kind of stuff um, and alternative worship stuff was was still travelling through the blogosphere. So, so those of us that were writing blogs, um, I, I sent out a message on a blog looking for poetry. These are the sorts of parameters of the poems we're looking for, of, if there's anything of interest. Thinking, you know, we might get enough for a, for a collection, we might get enough for a, for a you know, pamphlet, we might get enough for something. And then these poems started to pour in through every crack of the house, it seemed. You know, they were from all over the world, from America, from Canada, from Australia, from Singapore. Thousands, uh, thousands and thousands of poems. <laughs> and I was totally out of my depth, totally inundated with... You know, how do you how do you make a decision about all these these poems? Ended up, you know, I, I remember vividly sitting on on a train going through the Peak District and reading poems, and then you know that thing that you have, you know, you've got I've got this file on my laptop with hundreds of poems that I haven't read yet, so I read read through them and then burst into tears because one would break me open. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh dear, there's other people on the carriage. What on earth are they thinking that I'm doing? You know? and, and there's an awful lot of poems in there which were 
you know, substitutionary atonement by another name. And I chucked them straight out because I didn't want to read any more poems about. But there were other poems about Jesus coming and sharing a dunked biscuit, which I, I just could not understand how the way that that was written could move me as much as it did. Talking about the, the mess in someone's house and the, the ordinariness of it suddenly being anointed by something else. And, and so, so there were, yeah, it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing to be part of, but it was utterly exhausting. It was a year of my life, uh, really, to, to pull all that together. Uh, while I was in an extremely stressful job, that was kind of my, my escape in the evenings into the world of poetry. So we did that one, and that was the first collection. At that stage, Andy Freeman was taking over, over Proust and incorporating it into Space to Breathe. But around that time, we were also pulling together a second book, which Emily was was also involved in, because I realised I could not do that, that thing again on my own. I shouldn't do it again on my own, because, you know, we all have different tastes, and we needed to have a way of of, of sharing the, the responsibility of selecting which poems would, would go into the book. So yeah, so that's 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 the history of it, really. I, I suppose the the overwhelming feeling I have, of, uh, having been part of it, is just that privilege of 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 releasing other people's talent. You know, there's a, a tangible sense of letting people know, yeah, we would like to publish some of your poems, and the fact that people you know, became a few inches taller, certainly a, a poetic few inches taller, taller, because this people knew that ah, oh, somebody's seen something that I've written and it's released in them. And there, there are people there that I know now that have gone on to, to do a lot of other things with their writing. And that's brilliant. It, it couldn't get better, the, better than that, really. Now, I was thinking uh, that when we went to Greenbelt with the second book and there was the collection of poets there and a lot of people, it was the first time they were ever reading their own poetry out loud. And again, what a great experience to have been part of that sort of that tent was like full of people, wasn't it? There were lots of conversations, I guess, with people who sent their poems in or people who had just, it was their first experience of writing or performing or sending something in. It was quite an interesting just network of people that that exists evidently. Yeah, we have had a number of discussions, or I have, about formalising some kind of, of network. And it's it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened, I think, in part because of energy. But also, I've kind of, so, some of the, the, my thinking around how poetry is a spiritual exercise and, and how it, I, I, I find it really difficult to conceive as to, as to what that meeting looks like and what is the unifying connection for that apart from simply poetry. It's not an idea that I've, I've kind of let go and it's certainly, I was speaking to um, Alison Matthews, who was one of the other editors on the second book along with Emily, uh, only a couple of days ago and, and you know we were, we were kind of saying well maybe you know let's 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 not let that let that go entirely let's still think about whether or not it has it has legs yet to, to kind of pull together some kind of way of just again it's just about encouragement isn't it and, and, and supporting people to, uh, to to move forward again in, in their own writing. next poem quite a number of years ago now about a particular interest of mine which is ancient bits of old rock those standing stones or many ears or long stones or burial cairns that are dotted around the landscape and I think what I like about them is that sense of connection that's like a, a community through time that these were people I know nothing about their lives, not really, 
and yet in their striving towards something bigger than themselves in that deep spiritual concern that made them drag bits of rock from Wales to Wiltshire. I see something of, of what I'm trying to do in my prayer life and in my meeting with God in that quiet of my room, just that connection with some something bigger than myself. So this is called Menir. In the cold dampness of November, through the glooming light of a half-remembered day, I see you, Longstone, ancient and beloved, alone against the gorse and heath and sky. You are the colour of the moor, its moods and shifts reflected in the contours of your stone, the drifting seasons both familiar and strange. This is not your home. You stand estranged from land that gripped and held you fast, your uniqueness recognised at last by ants that ripped and dragged and rolled you to this place to stand, your face turned towards the coming years. Time has passed. Four thousand years of weathering winds and sun and rain as lichen crusts the outline of your frame and generations pass beneath your shade. Your roots lie deep within the borrowed earth that once lay undisturbed where now the dust of venerators past can quietly sleep. And why the toil to bring you to this place? Why struggle with the soil to pull and push you far from home to stretch your twisted angles to the sky and grace the landscape with unyielding form? Were you a marker for the days and years? The key that unlocked flower and fruit and womb? The panacea for barren lives and barren land whose loam holds those who made your profile true? Or did they recognise within your form one who would know beyond the fragment of their time, would show the way to mysteries far outside the wisdom of their years? And could they hear your call to brothers standing across the plain to another greater, higher mind, a name that quietly waits to speak? I lay my cheek against your cold, damp skin and sink my hands into the glowing moss that shapes and softens edges as I wait, as the wind keens across the heath and the crow disturbs the silence of the now. You've talked a little bit about the change which happened about four or five years ago what prompted that change that final sort of yes we're gonna we're gonna change how we live and what, what does your life look like in this new creative way of experiencing the world yeah well I I, I kind of was a little bit late to our business sea trip because Michaela I guess had already we'd already started the business we were in the process of moving from a big rambling old Victorian house that we'd, we'd kind of patched together to something smaller and something that had grounds for growing and you know lots of putting up polytunnels and the like at that, at that time i had gone 
through a, a period of, of work and I knew I had to stop. I knew I had got to do something else. So I um, handed in my resignation and spent half my time writing and half my time working on the business for that first year. And then actually pretty much we've flowed, you know, we've attended our, our time to, to whatever was most pressing in, in business or gardening or, or whatever else and discovered remarkably that despite having a fraction of the income that we used to have, our lifestyle has hardly changed. Don't know what money is spent on when, when you have a salary that comes in that you don't need to think about money. We're still, it's a mystery how that happens. But yeah, so, so it's just been about adjusting to a different pace of things and, and trying to sort of get a different routine to our weeks, really. Michaela is much more organised than I is. So she has, she has lots of lists. I resist lists as much as possible in, in every sense of the word. If she tries to speak to me about it, I'll go and hide. I think the prompt was exactly what Chris said, is that you couldn't have sustained what you were doing for one day longer than you did, I don't think. So three years before we made the final break, I handed my notice in at work after a difficult spell. I was like, I'd already been dabbling in uh, some more craft and a little bit of pottery. Let me see if I can make this business come to something so that we can make it our lives. So we had three years of doing that you then handed you notice and we sold the house the same day or something 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 there was a whole chain of coincidences wasn't there it all it all came together really quickly and you were given a grant through an amazing gift of some part-time funding for a year to write and so that eased us into the transition so life four and a bit years into that for me I'm full-time on the business so two days a week doing pottery, two days a week at the laptop doing all the boring stuff and one day a week or so doing workshops in the community or here. That's kind of more or less generally how it balances out over the year anyway. You, you've you been a lot doing a lot more of the hard work and the kind of structural work in the garden of building areas for us to grow. In that time, our children have both left home They've moved away, come back, moved away, come back, which seems to be the modern way of doing things. So we've kind of had to go along with the flow of that. And I think being self-employed has been such a gift for that time because we've been able to go and rescue them and or spend a joyful time with them and or just drop everything because somebody needs something. And it's it's been amazing to be able to do that with that mm. flexibility, hasn't it? I think it's interesting when we when we look at the hopefully the, the sort of closing stages of, of the, the pandemic lockdown that when a lot of people perhaps by necessity are forced to look at their lives and think about what they want to do next and think about whether they're they really want to keep doing that job that's so difficult and, and not maybe feeling that them the sort of spirit I guess so yeah there's a lot of that questioning going on it seems and we've been talking to so many people who had that sense of but it, it's not possible you can't do that it's not possible to to sustain a life through creativity I guess we have to say that it clearly is possible because we somehow are, are managing to do that but managing lot... to do it but I think you know I mean you you work part-time you, you spend time writing you spend some time on the business you spend some time working on the moorings locally with somebody mm. and you're juggling mm. a lot of different things the thing that never happens is anything in the house so the house <laughs> looks exactly the same as the day we moved in and 
for some people maybe that would be not okay do you know what I mean you do have to let some things go in order to sustain this kind of slightly chaotic way of living really don't don't we and that's for us that's what's... no sacrifice no I, don't, uh, I, don't I certainly wouldn't go back <laughs> yeah we, we've um like life is busy isn't it we we definitely take we we take Sundays off apart from very 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 occasionally for whatever reason if there's a ceramics fair or something and world poetry day last week so it's we're busy working five six days a week aren't we spend time as much as we can with friends and in our local community I don't think we could sustain that kind of anybody listening that's self-employed I think will understand it could fill every minute of every day because there's no limit could you have done it earlier or did you have to kind of get to a place where it was the right time to do that I think we could but the, I suppose our kids would have been younger then would that have made it more difficult I don't know for me there was a real I think desperation was my friend I, I needed to do it I kind of wrote a poem recently thinking about change coming out of the back of the pandemic where uh, I was thinking about the, the, the ways that change normally happens it's it's either through through kind of suffering through something going wrong which pitches you into the, the, the absolute necessity to change or it's because of love so you you know you have this kind of process by which you know you love something so much that it, you know you're just desperate to go and do that thing so that you're drawn into it or the, the third thing that we have to add after the pandemic is is silence you know the, the great silence the the kind of waiting the 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 open opportunity that, that the pandemic's given people and i think for me it, it was probably suffering that needed to get me to the point where I had to change. I had to do something different. Well, that and everything, everything builds towards something, doesn't it? So the the light, the balance with the business now, between making and creating to sell in order to earn a living, try trying to balance that with connection with people and making our work open to everybody, not just people that want and can afford to buy things, and then the community side of it comes from all the years we've spent working in the community, building so many different connections and ways to connect with people and ways to hear people's struggles and ways to talk about things. I think we perhaps couldn't have done this the way we are doing earlier than we did. It, we might have gone to art school or something at 18 and led a creative life it might have looked very it would have looked very different I think it would have just been a different path it, mm. it happened when it was meant to happen and we've struggled with it when when the kids the kids are now older but that doesn't stop the things happening that they need help with and we've not always been able to help them because our finances aren't what they were and then that's been the real challenge sometimes to us isn't it about whether we've made the right decision or not the, the sacrifice i think that Michael is alluding to is that, it, that the sacrifice that we make as, as adults we deliberately want to live a simpler life where, where consumerism is not part of what we do at all but that has un, unintended consequences on your loved ones as well that are around you and and suddenly they have to make make choices in a consumer world which we are to a certain extent imposing on them because of choices that we've made not to be in that world, even though we are, of course, all still part of that world. Because well, we're we're still never part of the world we're making a living. Well, also, it's, it's okay to, to sell art. <laughs> that's clearly not consumerism, is it? That's, that's, that's a different thing entirely. <laughs> do, do you still enjoy the creative process when you have 
a commercial angle or maybe even a commercial pressure? I think knowing people that are ahead of us in the game, talking about how they can reach burnout by just making the same thing all the time. What happens, we realise selling in shops and galleries is they just want more of what you've already made because they know it sells. So we've worked a way around that is if we can find a new shop or gallery that we can give them what we want to make now, the new, the newer stuff. And so it kind of builds. We've also kind of got around that by just making mostly one-off pieces that can't be... So every time I make something, it's a new thing. It's an, it's a new design. You know, I don't I don't have to make 20 of anything because I think that probably would be soul destroying. Creativity comes and goes, and sometimes my confidence is absolute rock bottom, and all I can hear is that teacher. Then you're a complete fraud. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Thinking calling yourself a ceramic artist. It's just, but but mostly I love it. Yeah. I'm I'm learning to uh, walk away from the clay when I'm not feeling it and try and do something else and come back to it. The same for me. I mean, it, it doesn't feel like a, a forced thing at all. I suppose, I suppose the things that I add to the mixture might be poems that are written a long time before they become a piece of, a piece of art. Or I'll, I'll often be doing, you know, framing or or uh, some t- glazing and sorts of things. But so, so I, I would have an involvement in the process that might have an industrial element to that. But I still enjoy that. I still like working with my hands. And there's a, there's a creativity to, you know, displaying things in a way that, that allow them to be appreciated. It's really strange to make a living out of it. I did a creative business planning course before I got started, and that was really helpful in that she said you know you you have to you have to do what you love and you have to make what you want to make and not be influenced by what other people want you to make because what you'll end up doing is very middle of the road that kind of pleases a lot of people it's not something really from you and it has to be really from you and there has to be just as many people that hate it as those that love it and then you know you've got something and it's been the most helpful thing anybody's ever said because you know, you have so many people that say, you know, pink is this year's colour or copper is this year's colour. You ought to make more of that. But they're not. No. <laughs> and and I, and to have the confidence to say that with with that wisdom, you know, from somebody else, it's been really, really helpful to go, this is what we do. And here's hoping that there are enough people that like it that mean we can make a living rather than trying to make as many pots as I can that fit this year's colour scheme or something you know it's just I think that would not be fulfilling at all. So you've been part of so many different communities and some of them are communities that you sort of created and then they're out there and perhaps you don't even know the full extent of how things are connected or how people are connected. Going from one thing to another is is it a pain in that? Is it a, a positive thing? I find it quite easy, probably easier than Michaela, to, to think about moving on to something new. That's just the way that I'm wired. I'm interested in the next thing always. I don't think, I think there's, there's always a bit of regret when something ends, isn't there, for, for all of us. But usually when, when that feels like it's run its course, it, it's not pain as such, because actually for, for something else to begin, something has to end. We can't just, just keep everything going forever. 
um, I think one of the, the common mistakes, if you're not careful, you'll end up building a church and having a flower rotor or something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, things have their time and, and, and friendships continue, hopefully. Um, but that's not the same thing as, as needing to, to hold on to something just because things can't change. Having said that, I mean, one thing that we haven't mentioned was for, for many years, um, I've been leading something that we call wilderness retreats, which began again as a group of friends going off onto a small wilderness location and just escaping for, for a long weekend. It became much more about an extended community of people who some of whom I see once or twice a year, others of whom I might see quite a lot more than that, but it's, it's a different kind of community again. And that, that community doesn't feel like it ever needs to stop because it's not about creating a process. It's not about creating an outcome other than just deciding to, to kind of be together. And what, what we do is we charter a boat and it drops us off on an uninhabited Scottish island. Most of these islands have a connection to some Celtic saint or other. Columba seems to have laid a claim to just about every single island in this part anyway so you don't have to work hard to find a suitable heritage connection we decide together that we will spend half of our time in silence and half of our time probably being profane and, and farting and, and laughing and an awful lot of laughing and so and the combination of those two things the, the profane and the, the silence and the, the kind of nature is utterly profound so yeah, I hope that never stops. I hope that, we, you know, as long as I'm able to get to those places, we'll, we'll continue to do that. And, and, and it's amazing how, again, the, the sustaining effect of those relationships have flowed into all, all sorts of other areas of my life and connections. And so I, I know people who know people because of those weekends. Uh, you know, it's, it's become almost like a, a road through which my whole life has traveled. We're, we're on the brink of starting another Zoom post-church connection for people that have kind of found themselves outside or beyond, or um, even, you know, as far as atheism, uh, beyond church, um, trying to kind of reconnect with what spirituality might mean. And, and the core of that is all people really that, that I know through these, these wilderness trips that we've been taking for so many years now. I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, it's, it was, it's interesting that you know, the way that, that community and creativity are shaped by space sometimes and about the fact that you, know, you choose to spend time in that space together with, with other people. I think it is different for me. Mm. I don't, I don't. Michaela doesn't like small islands without toilets. Oh, I'm not, yeah, <laughs> definitely not doing the wilderness retreat. Well, I didn't mean that. I find it, we have spent the, you know, the 35 years or something that we've known one another with me running behind a little bit going, what, what is it we're doing now? <laughs> because <laughs> I'm not quite there. I've not quite caught up. And then I do catch up and then I don't want to let it go because I've worked so hard at catching up. <laughs> so it's, it's different. And I think, you know, I keep in touch with a huge amount of people. I spend my Sunday evenings always letter writing keeping a lot of those contacts I think uh, that that matters more to me than what the next thing is but that's not to say it's not valuable it's just it's just a bigger adjustment for me I think to to do the next new thing. So you're you're starting this new new zoom uh, post-church something. Uh, we've, actually, we've actually got a, we've actually got a, a zoom meeting title which is the zoom thingy because we don't to know what it is yet or yeah. what it's going to be or nobody wants to wants to use the word church even to, to call it post-church even to give it a name oh no oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, 
<laughs> but you know, there's also that I think you, you know you said earlier. There's, there's there's a fragility, an exciting fragility about a new thing, isn't there? That that can be be really creative. It can really be inspirational as you as you as you're putting your energy into a new thing, and and seeing where that that takes us. Where you know what the the com particular combination of of personalities and and psychologies and excitements can take can when they when they come together around a new thing. What what's going to emerge out of that? How is that going to take, you know, the way that you as an individual think just because of your contact with that group of people? And that, that's what I absolutely love that. I love being part of that and seeing that, that happen around me. What is it that you love the most? If you could just be doing one creative thing, what would be your, I'd be doing this forever? It's funny, at the last Zoom thingy, there was this kind of really funny discussion with, with um, someone who we were talking about embodiment and how enter a spiritual connection through your body. And so, so uh, one of my friends was talking about how, you know, he, when he used to go clubbing, I mean, I never went clubbing, but he, he used to go clubbing and, and he had a dark corner and he would just lose himself in the music. And I was like, no, it's not me, mate. I, I would never do such a thing. And then I realised that actually what, what he was describing about that tra almost like transcendental experience in, in, in the corner of a, of a club, I get through reading a, a line of poetry or hearing that kind of minor key song that kind of suddenly connects with me. So for me, it has to be, it has to be poetry. It has to be the shape that words give to your thought and the way that thought gives to the words. It's that kind of interaction between the two. When you, when you write something and it almost emerges from you and your experience in a way that you had no idea that it was there. That, that's, that's the bit that still lights me up. And I would have to always continue doing that as long as I can. For me, when I did that creative business planning Year, year. I got a scholarship and did a whole year with this um, with an organisation called the Design Trust, which I would highly recommend. She's amazing. One of the activities we did right at the beginning of the year was she asked us to write down why we do what we do, we're doing because everybody there had a creative business or wanted to have a creative business, but it was very wide ranging. And she said, write down ten things, but then write down five more, and then write down five more. And you think there's no way that I'm going to be able. To. When I looked back at that. She basically said, just keep writing, why? And don't, don't stop till you've written 20 things. Don't go away and do something else. And when I look back over the 20, I never mentioned clay once or pottery. And it was all about creating a life that was sustainable for the two of us and the kids. And it was a lot of it was about creating a creative space that other people could be a part of and encouraging creativity in others and allowing myself to be creative. It didn't seem to be about the clay. I think, you know, pottery has become, and I love pottery. Chris bought me a voucher to do a pottery weekend about 15 years ago. And I said to the guy, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I mean, that, that is how much I loved it. But I think if I had to, to do anything if I could only have one thing it would be to have a space where there is a shared there's a sharedness that's not a word is it but whatever it, it is. can be a sharedness of yeah a space that's creative whatever whatever happens in there I think doesn't really matter yeah well thank you very much Chris and Michaela thank you for that wonderful conversation and just reflecting on all, all the different things that you're a, a part of I really enjoyed um, speaking with you and learning even more about all of those different things so thank you thank you very much for giving you're it you're welcome much.
poetry interlude. I suppose for me, the ultimate community is that of the Trinity. And I wonder what it would be like if we began our human communities from within that circle of infinite love and grace. This poem is a reflection on the famous icon painted by Rublev of the visitors that met with Abraham under the Oaks of Mamre. You have the same face, did you know? The same mutual deference and the same name, perhaps. Or is it three? That old chestnut, that eternal question. Beneath the oaks of Mamre you sit. Please, rest a while. You've been busy. The table, too, is made of oak, rooted in the earth. The cup is clay, although it has a touch of gold in this dappled light. It was formed from dust and will crumble back to dust one day. Drink from what I have to give. It is yours. Your triangle forms a circle as your fingers make the sign of blessing, of covenant, of community. The table is four-sided, open, an invitation to join. Dare I? Could I? At any moment, you might join hands, rise and dance, your kindred faces thrown back, laughing. Would you catch my hands and pull me to my feet to join the dance? Or shall I continue to kneel, the grit of the planet stuck to my skin, as your light feet skip over these old stones? This podcast was produced and presented by me, Emily McGrath. Thank you to Chris and Michaela Gowen and to Tracy Wheeler. This podcast is brought to you by the Resonate Bristol team associated with St Stephen's and Holy Trinity Hotwells churches. The music was created by Scott Holmes and accessed through the free music archive. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Resonate Bristol. Join us again next time.